Welcome to the Central Church of Christ podcast. We are located at 3501 Cheviot Avenue, Cincinnati, Ohio. It is our mission to worship and follow Jesus as we love and serve in his name. Come see us sometime at 1030 on a Sunday morning or while we feed the community at the Bread of Life Cafe each Wednesday evening at 530 p.m. We hope that the following message inspires you in some way today. Acts chapter 8 right now, so we're uh, transitioning through uh, the book of Acts. And just remember that this book was written as one story uh, by Luke. Uh, Both Luke and Acts are meant to be read together as a story. The gospel of Jesus and then the Acts of the church after the resurrection of Jesus. So that's really, really how to understand completely uh, what we're going through. Uh, This admittedly is a very difficult set of scriptures that Mariah read for us today. Uh, we see uh, the very first Christian uh, after Christ's resurrection being murdered for his convictions and his beliefs in Jesus. Uh, We see widespread persecution of the church, just unfettered unfettered attacks on God's people. It's it's, uh, disheartening to hear. It's it's scary to hear, and uh, we're going to get through it. There, There is beauty in this. And I hope you're already seeing the beauty in this as well. Uh, But I think it's important to also recognize the darkness. Let's remember for a minute together who Stephen was. Well, there's only two chapters in the Bible that that talk about Stephen, and that's Acts chapter 6 and 7. He's referenced again, but Acts chapter 6 and 7 is really where we learn about him. Uh, he was a Jewish man, but he was what's known as a Hellenistic Jewish man. It means he was raised by a Jewish set of uh, families. Parents were Jewish, but they were, lived outside of Jerusalem. So they were just overwhelmingly influenced by Greek culture. He was a Christian because he put his faith in Christ. So all of those things are true about him, which you'll see, and this is true for us, God can use our upbringings and the things that we go through and the things that we are to put us in the right spot to have the most massive impact. God is willing to use all of you for his good. All of these things about Stephen were put into place specifically. You remember, he was chosen by the church to be a deacon in the early church to take care of the Hellenistic Jewish women who probably not intentionally, let's like think the best of our early Christian fathers, Probably not intentionally, they were being neglected because the Jewish widows were given priority uh, over the Greek and the uh, non-Jerusalem Jewish widows. So Stephen was hand-selected by the church, identified as a man of God, full of the Holy Spirit, full of truth, full of power, full of grace, full of faith. And he was an excellent gospel apologist, which is really a great example for all of us. Can you defend why you believe what you believe. We don't have to defend God. We don't have to do that. But it is important for us to not only know with conviction what we believe and why we believe it, but then to be able to tell with conviction what we believe and why we believe it. That's called being an apologist, being able to defend the faith, why you believe what you believe. And Stephen, we know, was excellent at it. He was able to weave the entire story of Israel, find Jesus in it, and put it before men who are just obstinately uh, refusing to put Christ as Messiah. It's a great example for us. 
Already mentioned, we know that, that Stephen was the first Christian martyr. And he prays at the very end, again, speaking of his uh, influence that, uh, that Jesus had been on his life, he prays that for God to receive his spirit, and he prays specifically, don't hold this sin against these men who are killing me. Praise for forgiveness. Might as well be echoing the words of Jesus as he was being killed. This is also where we're introduced to Saul. A lot of what, well, nearly everything that we know about Saul, we, we find it in the books that he's written. Uh, and then in the book that Luke wrote here in Acts. So all of these things you can read about in the Bible, but Saul was from a town called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He was a tribe, he was Jewish, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. His father was a Pharisee. They were also Roman citizens, which plays a part in some of the goings-on later on in the book. Uh, Saul was an absolute high flyer. I don't know any other way to say it. He was the valedictorian. He was the top of the class. He was the chosen one. When he smiled, his teeth sparkled. All of those things. He was on that trajectory. He was kind of, from a very young age, people were saying, wow, about Saul. So much so that he was brought before one of the most celebrated uh, Jewish teachers, Gamaliel, to be his star, star pupil. Uh, Saul was a big deal, a high flyer, capable, convicted, able, articulate, intelligent. He knew multiple languages and spoke them fluently. We know that as we go on. And ultimately, he stood there uh, approving of Stephen's death. That's what we know about Saul so far. I want to quickly go through Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, and kind of catch some highlights before we dig in and get a little more specific. We know that Stephen's murder brought about widespread persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. I would say that that's not hard for us to see that happening. We've seen civilly over history where tensions are building and things are getting tense more and more and more tense and more and more dangerous. And then there's one event that sparks something off and then it explodes. Or it's the, the water levels are rising higher and higher and higher and it's that one thing that finally makes the water crest the dam and, and break it open. This happened here. This was a civil and a very spiritual event where tensions were building against the Jewish leaders and the young Christian church. And this murder of Stephen, it caused a wildfire of persecution in the early church. Uh, people were just widespread, banging on doors, dragging men and women. From their homes, out of churches, putting them in prison, approving of their deaths unfathomable for us. Can we say that? It's unfathomable for us. Because of that, Christ followers scattered. But there's some interesting things here. And one, one of my goals whenever I teach or preach, I want you to know that not every piece of Scripture is easy to understand. But I also don't want you to 
dismiss it because something is hard to understand. So I'm committed to just telling the things that we don't know because that helps us be more confident, I think, in the things we do know when we can admit there's some things that we don't fully understand. You, get, you hear what I'm trying to say? Okay. Okay, so in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, we read a couple things that on the surface seem to conflict or to go against. And how can that be true of this? There are some reasons, but end of the story, we really don't know what they are. But let's get into it a little bit. So we see in uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1, that Saul was there approving of killing Stephen. And then on that day, great persecution... If you guys want to read, it's a 1702 in the Bibles in your chairs. 1,702. That on that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And then this... And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So it makes it sound like the twelve stayed and everybody else who confessed Christ left. That's, that's my initial understanding. But then when you read farther, that's not what Luke is trying to say. Completely. Because, in verse 2, we know that there were some godly men who buried Stephen and mourned deeply. Were those the apostles? Maybe. Were they others? We, we don't know that one. And then let's continue. But Saul began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So who is he going house to house to and dragging them if all of the Christians left Jerusalem? You see what I'm saying? There's just some things that we just don't know what that word all meant. Some of the best that I could find is it was all of the Hellenistic Jewish people. and we can, That's confirmed maybe. People say that that's confirmed because Philip is the next story told, and he was a Hellenistic Jew, also in league with, with Stephen, who was also a deacon in the early church. So maybe the all was the Hellenistic Jews. Maybe they specifically were being targeted. We don't know. Uh, we don't know. And then uh, in verse 4, those who had been scattered preached wherever they went. So we know that some went, some stayed, but wherever they were, they never stopped being Christian. In the middle of widespread, ubiquitous persecution of the church, some left, some stayed, some identified themselves with Stephen. Very similar to what we saw Joseph of Arimathea do. Very similar to what we saw John and Mary and the other women do, standing at the cross. Identifying with Christ. Present being there. I'm with Him. This is happening here with Stephen as well. Men are saying, you all can do whatever you want. I'm going to take this holy man. And I'm going to honor him. Telling everyone who they stood with. And that when the early church, whoever saw fit to leave Jerusalem, they didn't stop being Christians just because they weren't in Jerusalem. 
and they didn't stop being Christians just because there was a threat of persecution. I cannot emphasize this enough. No matter our present day circumstances, whatever they may be, our first and highest allegiance has to be with Jesus. No matter what the circumstances, we throw our hats in the ring with Jesus. As it turns out, I think, I think we can understand this. Comfort, safety, affluence, the myth of security doesn't often promote us to be convicted to do more. Often, safety and security and affluence and peace convict us to be lazy. But here we see that in trial, in stress, in difficulty, when things are pressed, we saw Christians rising to the occasion. Not stopping because. Maybe even continuing at a higher degree because. And those stories are told over and over and over. I've seen it in my life. You want to find out what you're made of? Put it under pressure. You want to find out who you're really with and what you're really about? Stress that thing a little bit and you'll find out. I don't always like what I see when I'm put under pressure. Sometimes I do. Glory to God. Sometimes I don't. Help me, God. But this is what we see. And this is something that we cannot miss as we read through this very, very difficult story. The other thing I think just broadly that we can get is this this realization and this internal hope and conviction that we all need to rest in this and this needs to be something solid that we put our feet down on that we can trust and know that no matter what, God's kingdom will not be stopped. God's kingdom will not be stopped. No one can defeat God. No one can overcome God. Nothing will stop His kingdom. Nothing will stop His plans. Nothing will interrupt God's will. Nothing. And we see that here. And we need to be able to have this joyful assurance, no matter what our present day circumstances, is that God can and God will. He is who He says He is, and He will do what He's promised He'll do, and nothing nothing can stop His kingdom. So you see that in Matthew 28, you know this, this great commission that we're told, uh, all authority, Jesus says, uh, on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'll always be with you to the very end of the age. We're told to go. Now we see that God is using this persecution to fulfill this prophecy that Jesus gave before his ascension, when he said, you'll go, you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The second part of Jesus' prophecy is coming true here. And God is using persecution. And I'm not saying God is causing persecution. God doesn't do that. That's not what he's about. But God can use anything that happens for his glory. Have you seen that in your life? Have you seen good come out of bad? 
Have you seen resurrection? Have you seen changed lives? Have you seen strength come out of pressure? God can use life to promote His kingdom and to strengthen us in the the call. We also see here is that God is faithful in persecution, that He can use it to spread His Gospel. If the Jewish Sanhedrin and Saul knew what God's plan and capabilities actually were, they wouldn't have pressed so hard. They would have given them food and given them a building and given them uh, riches and, and reduced their taxes and made it super easy for them to live there, make them real lazy and real complacent and, and real neglectful. But instead, he pressed them, and this is what God does. God uses situations, both good and difficult, and his kingdom will not be stopped. We've got to rest in that. Say that out loud in your life. Lord, I don't love what's going on in my life right now. I'm scared. I'm, I have fear. I'm nervous. I, I, I feel unsettled, at, un, at rest. I, I don't like where my mind is right now, but be with me and in me, and I know that your kingdom will come. I know that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and I know you are who you say you are, and I know your kingdom won't be stopped. No matter what. That's something I think we can learn from this passage here. That God's kingdom will never ever be stopped. And then, we've mentioned this already, I think a broad lesson that we can learn here is that God can use persecution. And then I just pulled from what Stephen, when he was defending the faith in front of the Sanhedrin, he used Daniel, the son of man. He used Joseph's story to try to show them Jesus in the Old Testament in Scriptures that they would accept and affirm and understand. But let's turn to Daniel chapter 3 and let's read this story here. A a familiar one, admittedly. It's on page 1380. And I'll read those two verses there, or three verses, 28 through 30. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, this is context. This is uh, after the, the boys wouldn't uh, bow down to the idol. And they got threatened with the fiery furnace. In fact, they came, the king followed through on that. They pushed him in. And they survived it with the Holy Spirit, with God, with a divine presence in their midst. And they come out of that in the Bible. One of my favorite phrases, this, this uh, imagery, is that their hair didn't even smell of smoke. Now, when I go into a fire, my hair smells of smoke for 14 days. They were in a fiery furnace, and they walked out smelling like fresh. Not even a whiff. All right, here's the context. So Nebuchadnezzar watches all this go down. He is so convicted and moved in his heart, he says this. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in Him, defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And a couple things we need to know here is in their obedience, they didn't stop being slaves. They're still slaves in Babylon here. As they're being used by God, as God's kingdom is moving forward, as God is using persecution of His followers to promote His kingdom, it's all still not all good. Can we understand that? That good can come out of not so good? And just because God is all about making it good doesn't mean everything that we're dealing with is good or okay. I think you heard Adrian talk about that this morning. Not everything was good or okay. But thank God she saw God moving in her life and providing and protecting and making a way. That doesn't give an allowance for all that nonsense. It doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it all right. But God can use that to, to help us, to, to love us, to provide for us. Also, I think in here is a good example of a young believer, Nebuchadnezzar, not really understanding everything. If they don't you know, confess God, we're going to cut them to pieces and bulldoze their houses. I think it's important for us to understand that new Christians, Christians were always works in progress. Always, 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 always. Uh, one of my professors used to say that when Jesus gets a hold of your life, sin usually comes out slowly and kicking and screaming. It's usually a pretty ugly process. And number one, I don't think we should ever expect people that don't love and follow Jesus to act like Jesus. That should not be an expectation of ours. It's just unrealistic. Why would anybody do something as wild as follow Christ if they don't love Christ? We just can't expect it. It's nice when it happens, but we can't expect it. And also, let's give allowances to each other as we walk on that path of faith. We're constantly getting closer to the image of God. Brighter light is shining on us. And there's still things in us, character flaws and sinfulness, that God is removing. Let's make allowances and be patient with each other. Let's be kind to each other as we become more like Christ. Thankfully, I've not heard any of you say, like, cut people into pieces and move their, you know, make their houses rubble. That's good. That's good, but let's still make good allowances for each other as we come to Christ. And then I'll just briefly mention the Joseph story, the persecution from his brothers, the lying, the imprisonment, the Potiphar's wife, the whole thing. And it gets down to the end and says, man, you, you guys didn't do anything wrong. God was providing. God was using that persecution to provide for my, my dad, my little brother, and y'all, and a whole kingdom. But even in that, they were still in Egypt. It still wasn't perfect. But God was moving it in all of that time. And I've said this already, but what God can use for good doesn't make it all good. You got me? Let's, let's be careful with our words and not make it seem that life is just okay when it ain't. And that Oh, you know, rub a little dirt on it, shake it off, toughen up. And life is hard. All I'm saying is that there's evidence that God can use difficult and make it beautiful.
I think in here, at least in my mind, I saw a correlation between temptation and persecution. Uh, I don't think we should ever seek it out, either one. Poke the bear. Uh, I don't think you should test the lines um, to whatever, sin sexually a little bit to see what it's all about. To be a little greedy, to see how tough you are to put your faith in material things, to, to be a, a workaholic, to be a little hateful and unforgiving, to see how you can endure this temptation. We don't, you don't invite temptation in your life. You run from it, and you stand up to it. And also, we don't invite persecution into our life either. But we do need to learn how to stand. We do need to learn how to be tough. We do need to learn how to endure. And we do need to know that we are made in God's image and that we're not animals. We don't have to fall to every whim and every desire. We can be tough. We can do hard things. We can make decisions in Jesus' name for his good. And we can obey him even when most aren't. And it's not nor it feels so natural to not. But we make decisions for Christ and we can do those things. There's this verse that I learned uh, when I was a kid, uh, just in accountability groups with other men and young men, striving to be God's son and be a man of God, to be obedient, to be faithful, to be sexually pure, to be uh, just, to, just to be good as a guy. It says, no temptation has seized you except what's common to man, but God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, God will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. God doesn't tempt us, but God knows that there is Satan, there is evil, there is wrong and sin, sinfulness in this world. And what is, one of his promises to us is that he'll, he'll give us the strength to stand. And he'll also give us a way out. And hopefully you've, you've seen this. You're stronger after enduring well something hard. It's a muscle that we have to flex. It's a muscle that we have to work out. It's a muscle that can get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger to never give up, to never lose hope, to never stop trusting, to never walk away from faith, no matter what's happening. That God can provide these things, and God desires this for our life, that we can still preach the gospel during widespread persecution. We can still be Christian when it's not popular or easy. I saw a correlation there with temptation and persecution. Something else that I want us to see here in this is the godly men that buried Stephen, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, John and uh, Miss Mary and, and the other women that stood with Jesus. I want you to know that it's honorable living for the Lord. It's honorable. It's good. It's commendable. It's right. And we see that how Stephen was honored. Think about how easy it would have been to say, well, if Stephen wouldn't have taken it so far with the Sanhedrin, we probably would all have been okay. If he wouldn't have pushed him so much, we probably still could have been eating the grapes here in Jerusalem. If Stephen had had such a big mouth, calling him stiff neck, uncircumcised heart, he just went too far. Stephen just went too far. That's not what happens here. 
They stood by him. They said his testimony is right. Did you know legally they were not allowed, they were not allowed to publicly mourn Stephen because he was criminalized by the church? So these men did this privately, quietly, respectfully. It's honorable to live a righteous life. It's desirous, something you should be proud of, not prideful arrogance, but knowing that you're doing something good because you're following Jesus. It's, you should spur something in you. It should feel good to be good in God's name. I know it does. From my experience, I like how I feel. when I'm obedient. I don't like how I feel when I'm a jerk, when I'm sinful. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. God, forgive me. But God, motivate us to to be that, to see it as righteous and honorable and worth it. Jesus says as much in one of his first big public speaking times in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is saying, if they treated me this way, y'all might want to get ready. They might be coming up on you too to treat you this way. But don't give up. Don't stop being godly because it's hard. Don't stop being godly because you're being harmed. Know that it's right. Stand on it. And you'll be blessed, Jesus promises. A really inspiring and awfully difficult chapter to read in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 11. It's, you know, a lot of people call it the hall of faith, like the hall of fame or whatever. The hall of faith. Men and women who did great things in God's name because they loved and trusted and had faith in God. Most of them, way before they knew the promise of Jesus. I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 11 today, to to, to read the testimony of what men and women did because they believed that living for God was honorable, that being righteous was good. And I want to say to all of us together, can we be a community that helps each other hang in there when it ain't all okay? When things aren't good, we can hang in there together. I want to be with the people that I love the most when things are the worst. And those friendships and those relationships are developed. And they can help us be strong when it's not easy to be. Seek godliness and godly friendships. It will give you the strength to hang in there. These are the prayers that Stephen spoke at the end of his life. There's a couple things that we can take from this. Stephen had confidence on where... Stephen had confidence on where he was going. It was never a question. Okay, Pop, open up the door. Here I come. Receive my spirit. My, My life is directed towards you. Please understand that Stephen did not want to get murdered... He wanted to be faithful. You guys get that? He wasn't looking to get dead. He was looking to be faithful. 
But we see in his prayer at the very end of his life that he knew confidently where he was going. And we can have that same confidence. We can have the same confidence. Because God is who He says He is, and He will do everything He's promised He'll do, including receive our spirits after putting our faith in Him. Secondly, this is a crazy example of a prayer being answered. Because one of the last things that Stephen says is, do not hold their sins against them. And, Stephen was, or, uh, and Saul was standing there like the Godfather, approving of this whole thing. And that prayer was answered in Saul's life. Stephen's prayer was answered in Saul's life, and we see an opponent become an advocate. We see an enemy become a friend. We see two guys that were diabolically opposed get on the same page because a prayer was answered. Prayer's powerful, y'all. God answers prayers. We see it here in a crazy way. How Saul becomes one of the most aggressive evangelists this world has ever known putting his life on the line over and over and over, and that was prompted by a prayer of someone he witnessed being murdered. I think one of the things that we've got to remember in all of this is that this this steady confidence that we know that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him. We've got to just put that on repeat. I don't know what's going on right now in this crazy joint right now, but I know that you're going to work for the good, and I love you. That you are going to work in this. And then this, this is a reminder that I say to myself all of the time, is that I believe that Psalms 119.105 is true, that, that, that God is a lamp for my feet, that his word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path, but it's, he's never guaranteed like a floodlight. I want to see it all. But he promises that this next step is covered by light, which removes the darkness, and he'll continue to shine that light. That's a trust thing. I'm excited to continue to go through uh, Acts. Uh, Please be reading it. You'll get so much more out of these times if you come and and you've read it and you kind of know the story already. I would challenge you, as I always do, how would you tell these stories? How, because that puts you in the mode of having to be an apologist, like Stephen, defending the faith, saying why you believe what you believe. Uh, let, me, let me pray, and then uh, if anyone needs prayer, Laura, if you'll be there, I'll, I'll, I'll go over to this side. We'll sing a little bit, and uh, just know that this church is here for you, that we love you, uh, that if you want to celebrate, we want to celebrate with you. And if, you, if you're hurting, we want to we be sad with you. And if you need help, We'll do anything that we can. This is a church of loving people. I've seen it personally, and I'm proud of us for that. We stand up for people, and we meet people. We help people. I think that's a Jesus thing to do. Lord, thank you for this day, a chance to open your word and see what what you're all about. The words that are true, may they be true in our lives. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. God bless you.